Uh, let me start us off with prayer, since we're just getting the day started and it's a, it's a big day for us all. Father, thank you for a new day. Thank you for um, working in our hearts and uh, working your salvation in us, your healing. Um, thank you for what you're doing around the world. Uh, we pray that you would um, speak to us today, um, speak through us to each other, um, help us to learn from you, help us to hear how you're leading us, help us to keep in step with your spirit. Um, thank you for uh, being our Lord and our King and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I'm Doug Collins. I'm from University of Cincinnati. Um, I teach in the family medicine department there with a focus on global health. And um, my wife and I served for about nine years in Cambodia with Pioneers International and Team Expansion from 2002 to 2011. And we returned to Cincinnati, home of the Bengals, 8-0, um, to, uh, to work there. I also work at a homeless clinic in Cincinnati and run a refugee uh, clinic there as well. And so through those experiences have um, worked a lot with tuberculosis. So I come to you today to share more from uh, some clinical uh, not expertise, but clinical experience. So if there are experts in the room, feel free to chime in if you hear me off on something. I'm not uh, an expert on the topic. Uh, before I dive in, um, I want to share a sad story from rural Cambodia that I think of when I think of TB. Uh, I met this little girl when she was about 12 years old in Chilong, in rural Cambodia, and she was diagnosed with tuberculosis at the referral hospital there. She was started on treatment with the Category 1 drugs, rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol. Started to improve, but she lived very remotely, and they weren't effectively implementing the directly observed therapy um, program in her village. And so she defaulted. She started getting worse, came back to the hospital, was started on streptomycin as that Category to defaulter, as they call that, and, um, and she was also given a bike by the Pioneers team I was working with, and that helped her have access to the medications she needed, and she got well. She got healed from her tuberculosis, but why it's a sad story is a year later, she got malaria and died, and it just highlights to me the, uh, the burden of disease that a lot of our world uh, fights and is under. Um, our objectives today is to cover TB, um, kind of epidemiology, microbiology, diagnosing, treating, and programs. So it's a lot. If you have burning questions that can't wait, go ahead and ask. But if they can wait, I'll stick around afterwards and answer questions because we'll probably need most of the time to hit all the slides and talk. Uh, topics. It's going to be case-based, so uh, a few times during these cases I'll ask you to maybe turn to a, a friend and talk to each other uh, about the case. Um, and I want to, before I dive in, just say some important notes. Um, first of all, thanks to Lisa Haglin, one of my colleagues at UC. She's in infectious disease and works at the Hamilton County TB Control uh, as the director there. Also want to note that all the photos that are used here of uh, patients that I've seen were taken with permission and are used by permission, and there are no conflicts of interest. So I'm going to dive in first with some epidemiology on TB uh, to get, get uh, the big picture for us. Uh, so these are all updated numbers uh, for the most part. TB is now, as of October, the top infectious disease killer worldwide. It just uh, overtook HIV and it depends also how you count that. I'll show you a graphic on that. Two billion people are infected with TB worldwide. You've all probably heard that fact before. So one in every three people in the world approximately is infected with TB. Most of those are latent uh, TB carriers. Uh, 9.6 million new cases per year in 2014, one million of which were children. 1.5 million deaths per year. Over 95% of TB deaths are in low and middle income countries. And the leading cause of death in HIV is TB, accounting for about one in three deaths. Uh, another big concern is the rising incidence of MDR, that's multi-drug resistant, and XDR, that's extensive, extensively drug resistant TB, um, rising incidence, 480,000 new cases per year uh, now is the latest estimate. 
and only 25% of MDR cases are estimated to be reported. Uh, so that's a growing challenge, and I'll cover uh, that in more depth. Uh, Millennium Development Goal 6 uh, that ended in 2015 uh, was met, 6.8 was met to target, uh, to halt and reverse the TB epidemic by 2015. So that was good news. The incidence of TB worldwide is decreasing, which kind of looks like good news, but it's only decreasing at 1.5% per year at best. And that is far too slow, as I'll show you guys later, to achieve the goals that we're aiming for. Uh, the death rate dropped between 1990 and 2015 by 47%, so a lot of uh, lives spared. To reach the goal of elimination of TB by 2050, uh, they estimate that we would need a 16% decline in incidence um, rather than the 1%. So it shows you how far short we are of that. So a lot of numbers there. Looking at incidence rates around the world on the map here, um, <clears throat> the high burden countries, there's 22 that are considered the high burden countries, and those account for about 80% of tuberculosis worldwide. 13 of the 15 highest are in southern sub-Saharan Africa. You can see that in the green and turquoise on the map there. Um, in Asia, some of the high burden countries include Cambodia, Myanmar, Afghanistan, and North Korea. In terms of absolute numbers, India and China um, and Indonesia are, have the most, and they together account for over a third of new cases every year. And in terms of, and if you look at uh, the world map, this is using, looks like, uh, I don't know if you guys can adjust the screen. We're missing all the references at the bottoms. Um, so if, if that can be adjusted, uh, work on that if you could. Thanks. Uh, but this is from World Mapper, and uh, it's a website where you can put in a certain um, data measurement and see what the world would look like if each country was sized based on that statistic. So if, if, the, world, if the countries of the world were sized based on TB incidence, that's how big uh, Africa and Asia would be compared to the skinny U.S. and uh, generally the entire Western Hemisphere. That very much parallels HIV, which also parallels the history that you guys are familiar with, with HIV rising and how TB really boomed back as a world emergency. Uh, Multi-drug resistant and extensively drug resistant TB um, are becoming bigger and bigger problems. 3.3% of new TB cases in 2014 were multi-drug resistant. And 20% of previously treated TB cases were multi-drug resistant. Um, I already mentioned 480,000 people developed that in 2014. And of multi-drug resistant, um, approximately 9.7% are extensively drug resistant. And I'll give you guys the definition of that in a little bit. So some big concerns there. Here's a map of multi-drug resistant TB. And on that, uh, we can see the former Soviet states uh, and Eastern Europe and South Africa tend to be uh, the ones with the highest burden. Um, if you're interested in data, the IHME website has data visualization tools that are excellent. You can crunch all kinds of data, put in the variables you want, and get different types of uh, tree maps, charts, etc. cetera. Uh, very powerful tool. This is from IHME. And this is the DALIs. You can't see it at the top, but um, the global burden of disease, which started in 1990, was measuring health uh, impact around the world, the burden of disease using disability-adjusted life years. So a tool to look at the burden of illness rather than just through the eyes of mortality or incidence rates, but how much does that illness cause disability uh, for the rest of life for people. And the big three that are funded by the Global Fund, malaria, TB, and HIV, um, all climbed into the uh, top 13 there by 2010, so TB fell a little as far as disability from 8 to 13. Another uh, data 
tool from IHME's website. This is a, uh, a tree map, I believe is what they call it, or a quilt. And this is showing in 100% of causes of DALIs, the disability burden. The blue is the NCDs, non-communicable diseases, things like diabetes, stroke. The red is infectious disease and maternal and infant mortality. And the green is trauma, such as road traffic accidents. And so that summarizes the burden that those categories have. Within that, um, you can see the burden of HIV, TB, and malaria. And so I'm going to move from 1990 here to 2010, and you can see how in that 20-year span, the blue, going back here and now going forward to 2010 again, the blue grew a lot. And so a, a large increase in the burden of the NCDs, but... I bring this up to show that within the infectious disease red, the global burden of the big three, malaria, HIV, and TB, actually grew. In terms of TB versus HIV in global mortality, um, TB is now the fifth uh, leading cause of death among HIV uh, sorry, worldwide, and then on the right, you see the estimated number of deaths from HIV uh, and TB compared, and as I mentioned, TB has overtaken HIV as the number one infectious killer. Just a few more epidemiology slides, and then we'll get to a case. Um, this is comparing developing countries or low-income countries versus developed countries or high-income countries. On the left, you see a lot more red. Those are the infectious diseases as far as causes of mortality, and tuberculosis now sits in 2015 at number six. On the right, a lot more blue, the NCDs. Um, just a few stats for you. In the U.S., um, the rates are decreasing here as well. It's highest in Asian Americans at 25.6% uh, of TB cases are in Asian Americans. Um, and here's a breakdown by age, and in every category of age, Asian Americans have the highest rate as well. Um, however, if you look at who is U.S. born, uh, African Americans have the highest percentage, whereas uh, foreign born is the Asian uh, percentages highest. All right, so let's uh, visit another case here. A 40-year-old Tanzanian man with a cough for one month, weight loss, intermittent fever and chills, and night sweats. On physical exam, he had a temperature of 36.5 Celsius, a respiratory rate of 20, crackles in the left upper lung field. And so just take a minute with your neighbor and briefly talk about TB, what causes it, and how does it typically present. Maybe share with each other just for 30 seconds what you know. <laughs> So this is a pretty classic case of post-primary TB where you see the cavitary lesion in the left upper lung field on the x-ray. And I just want to dive in here and talk about pathophysiology, transmission, and progression of TB. Uh, TB is, as a disease, is caused by the mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. So that includes mostly mycobacterium tuberculosis, but also uh, bovis and africanum. Um, those are dif difficult to differentiate in most lab tests. Um, it's an obligate aerobe, meaning it loves and needs oxygen, uh, and that's one of the theories, of course, that you've heard about why the apical lesions occur is higher oxygen tension. There's debate about whether that's really the full reason. Um, those are bent rods that are 2 to 4 microns in length by 0.2 to 0.5 microns, and they have a thick, lipid-rich, acid-fast cell wall that is unique to them and allows them to hold on to acid, and so they're called acid-fast bacilli. They are very slow-growing, 
MTB uh, uh, generation time is around 12 to 18 hours per generation. Um, so it generally takes four to 12 weeks um, to culture it. So very long, it's faster in liquid culture, which is now the gold standard, but is expensive. E. coli, just to give a comparison, like many of the common bacteria that we get infected with, uh, replicates and has a generation time of 20 to 30 minutes. So MTB, a much slower grower, and that makes it a diagnostic challenge when you're trying to get information fast. Um, it's transmitted in 5 to 10 micron droplets, which is the perfect size to stay airborne for a while and get into someone else's lungs and to reach terminal airspaces as well, small enough to get all the way to the terminal airspace. Those... Um, those droplets, once they are inhaled, are, they get to the terminal airspace, and in the alveoli, macrophages uh, attack them, but they're not able to destroy them. Their acidification with the phagosomes is insufficient to kill the bacillus. And so it becomes a carrier for the bacillus, and then uh, so there's multiplication while they're being carried around through lymph and blood. And typically, if a person is not immunosuppressed, They'll deal with that, they'll wall it off, and they won't have disease from it, but it's in them. Um, that is a humoral and cell-mediated effect, and it, 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 has, it includes the delayed type hypersensitivity, type 4 reaction that we have in our immune system, and that is the uh, grounds for the TB test uh, that Nancy has on her arm right now. It does not, our, our immune uh, response does not give us complete protection at all. <clears throat> so looking at progression uh, clinically, 90% of people who get TB will remain disease-free. That's called latent TB or LTBI. Um, they have a 10% lifetime risk of progressing to active TB. Uh, for people that are HIV positive, they have a 10% risk of progressing per year and a total lifetime risk of 50 per 50%. Half of that risk of, of getting active TB is within the first 18 months to two years. And latent TB um, is often uh, activated by illness, immune suppression, malnutrition, stress, injuries, steroids, and now a lot of the immunomodulators that we're using as well, the TNF-alpha inhibitors as an example. <clears throat> there are other key risk factors for people who get TB and to get active TB. Um, so whether it's risk of contracting or risk of having active TB, the odds ratios for smokers is two to one. So a two times greater risk. For diabetics, it's three to one. For silicosis, which is common in South Africa because of the gold mining, um, it is three to one. And in heavy alcohol users, that's over 40 grams a day, it's three times greater. In end-stage renal disease, it's 10 times greater. So with the rise in NCDs, there's a lot of concern that we're going to see a bigger burden with TB as well. 10% of people will get active TB. That will either be as primary disease, which is uh, typically thoracic, um, the hilar lymph nodes, things nearby from when they got infected, but it also may be disseminated as it quickly does, and that's particularly common, more common in children, and that can be meningeal in the, in the central nervous system or miliaria, miliary all over in different organs. Um, they, more, um, not necessarily more commonly, but the classically what we see, what we think of when we think of TB is post-primary disease, and that's the reactivation or reinfection. And what happens there is the person is now immune sensitized already to TB, and so when they see uh, this reactivated bug, there's more tissue destruction, and that's what's causing those cavitary lesions, um, typically apically, um, and again, probably apically more commonly because of the oxygen tension that is higher there, but also the lymph flow is worse there, um, so that might play a role. Uh, then there's destruction in airway communication, and those people become the highest spreaders, the highest sputum concentration. Uh, if untreated, active TB um, will generally kill people, 50% uh, of people within five years. Um, another 25% of people are cured, and another 25% it stays chronic and impairing. So that 50% who die over that five-year period, um, that's where that nickname consumption came from. Um, 
And just to compare and to review, on the left is an X-ray that shows hyalur lymphadenopathy and probably a right lower lobe infiltrate, and that's a typical primary picture. So more of a normal-looking pneumonia or hyalur uh, lymph nodes. On the right shows the classic cavitary lesions of post-primary. Um, if we break down the clinical picture, um, again, you can't see the title at the top, but this is the clinical picture for HIV-negative patients. Um, TB clinically will generally be pulmonary. Overall, in all TB worldwide, it's around 80% is pulmonary. Um, in HIV-negative, it's 75% pulmonary only. 15% um, of people HIV-negative will have extra-pulmonary TB, and 5% will have both. Within extra-pulmonary TB, the majority are lymph node TB, that's 35%, and followed by pleural effusion, that's 20%. I'll give you more detail on extra-pulmonary TB in a, in a minute. Compare that, this is HIV-negative, with uh, HIV-positive here. So in HIV-positive patients, 50% of them will have both pulmonary and extra-pulmonary TB, and... Um, and only 30% will have only pulmonary TB. So generally a more complicated picture. All right, case three. A 30-year-old man with a cough for five weeks um, presents to you. His physical exam shows a temp of 37.9, a respiratory rate of 24, crackles in the right uh, lower base. What does the chest x-ray show? What's your differential diagnosis? And how would you diagnose TB in this man? Go ahead and talk to your neighbor a second. So the chest x-ray shows a right lower lobe infiltrate and right hyalur lymphadenopathy, very similar to the uh, other x-ray I showed you. And this is a patient who was HIV positive. So let's talk about clinical presentations of TB. Uh, in pulmonary, this is the list for pulmonary TB. Classically, people have an insidious onset and then these five classic symptoms. They don't have to have all five. Cough is always very common. Um, and cough persisting more than three weeks in any high-burden high TB country, think of TB. I've been working on one right now for about three weeks. I don't think it's TB. Um, I hope it's not. <clears throat> uh, hemoptysis is only present in about 10%, and hemoptysis is present in a lot of other lung diseases. Um, so it's not specific, it's not sensitive, but it is classic. Weight loss, fever, and night sweats are the other of the uh, five classic symptoms. And then, of course, malaise and fatigue that go with that, and uh, also anemia of chronic disease being a part of that malaise and fatigue uh, that patients have. Here's a case four, a persistent cough despite treatment. A 24-year-old refugee from Thailand, um, this is from the CDC DPDX website. If you like cases, that's a great um, website for tropical medicine cases, parasite cases. Um, so a 24-year-old refugee from Thailand treated for TB by the Kentucky local health department. Six months after um, his arrival in the U.S., a digested sputum specimen showed low numbers of objects measuring 100 by 60 micrometers. What's your diagnosis? So this is a person who did not respond to their TB treatment. Uh, any guesses? Good guess. I heard schisto. Um, close. It is a fluke. It is paragonimus. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that, but uh, it's caused by paragonimus westermanni um, and some other paragonimus species. Um, this one was caused by westermanni, and uh, it's uh, lung fluke is kind of the nickname for that. So on your differential for TB, depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, you might have some other tropical diseases. So just a, a more comprehensive list that's actually cut off at the bottom. Um, 
of other causes to consider. In HIV patients, you'd want to consider um, Kaposi's sarcoma, KS, uh, and PCP. Uh, you would not want to miss uh, pneumocystis pneumonia. Um, other bacterial causes are common. Other mycobacteria that are not part of the MTB complex can cause uh, similar symptoms. So mycobacterium avium, intracellulary complex. Uh, bacterial pneumonias, lung abscesses. Melioidosis in um, Southeast Asia, especially rural areas. In, then, of course, all the fungal diseases. And then within the helminths, you could have TB-looking pictures from people with coughing from a nematode. Um, such as tropical pulmonary eosinophilia in Wuchereria, Bancrofti infections, uh, and then paragonomyosis we talked about already. So those are some infectious causes you'd want to think about depending on your context. And then, of course, a lot of the non-infectious causes, especially chronic lung diseases and cancers, but also sarcoidosis, Wegener's granulomatosis, and uh, pulmonary fibrosis. So that's kind of a quick brush through... Um, a differential. All right, the case of Mr. Pink Pants. Uh, this is a little boy I had the privilege of meeting in a very odd way. Um, I was driving home to our house in uh, urban Cambodia and back roads of Phnom Penh, a dirt road, going fairly slow. And this nine-year-old boy in the pink pants came darting out from around a corner, a concrete-walled corner, and I did not see him, and I actually hit him. Um, my son was in the car. It was very freaky, but the kid was fine. I was able to stop right as I hit him, and he got up. Uh, no, you know, looked alert. Everything looked fine. But I noticed that his right neck was huge, uh, swollen. And you can see a little of that in the picture. And it was draining. And so this was kind of a, uh, yeah, just an odd way to meet a TB patient. Uh, but we were able to... Uh, send him to um, our medical center, and, or it might have been another medical center, and get him treatment. I oh, did you? Okay, there we go. Um, so, uh, another question. What's your differential diagnosis for cervical lymphadenopathy, and what are characteristics of TB lymphadenopathy? Rather than have you discuss this one for the sake of time, I'll just keep going. Um, the characteristics of TB adenitis are typically that it's unilateral, um, it's um, matted, it can be, it's usually non-tender, it's usually going to find sinus drainage, it can have some local destruction as well. Um, but, uh, and here's a, a case of classic scrofula, TB adenitis that has that uh, fluctuant, purulent look. Um, <clears throat> another case that I saw in Cambodia was a 67-year-old teacher, and he had bilateral, firm, non-draining, immobile cervical lymph nodes. So even though we were in a high-burden country, um, this was a case that ended up being non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so just to, to differentiate the unilateral presentation versus bilateral and the fluctuant and draining presentation versus a firm presentation. So just uh, to cover the clinical features of extrapulmonary TB, again, the insidious onset, often the general symptoms. If there is concurrent pulmonary TB, they'll have the cough as well. Um, the site-dependent features, lymphadenitis accounting for 35% of extrapulmonary TB, and I already covered that. Pleural effusion accounts for about 20%. Uh, it can be uh, marked by dyspnea, pleuritic chest pain, pleural thickening. Um, and importantly, um, with a lot of extrapulmonary TB, but particularly with pleural effusion because it's so common, remember that uh, usually AFB stains of the pleural fluid will be negative, um, so it's not helpful. Um, it's still worth doing, but it, it will often be falsely negative. Uh, bone and joint is, uh, accounts for about 10% of extrapulmonary TB, and the most famous is POTS disease, uh, which is TB in, typically in the thoracic spine, T6 to T8 level is most common, I believe, and that could present with back pain, gibbous deformity, or even neurologic deficits as the anterior crush fracture that happens with that uh, starts to impinge on the nerves. Genitourinary TB uh, also occurs. Uh, if it's in the urinary tract, hematuria might be the presentation. If it's gonadal, uh, it could be anything from orchitis to uh, tubo-ovarian abscess to infertility. Uh, miliary TB, uh, meningeal TB, uh, GI TB are some others, and, and there's any number of others. So there was the old saying, he who knows syphilis knows medicine. I think you could almost say a similar thing about TB with how it can present. 
so K7, this is a guy uh, from rural Cambodia who came to Mercy Medical Center in Phnom Penh where I worked, and he was no longer able to walk, and um, we were able to get him over to an orthopedic surgeon who generally, if they have a 30, 30 degree or more um, kyphosis or damage, uh, angulation or nerve damage going on, will typically do surgery, and he did surgery on this guy, was able to do a, a biopsy to confirm it was TB. Um, this is not his x-ray. This is from the ACR um, database, but you can see kind of an anterior wedge fracture that's classic for POTS disease. Uh, my first year in Cambodia, um, I saw this uh, young girl. I think she was uh, maybe just preteen, and that's her knee on the left. She was emaciated. Her heart rate was jacked up and just looked horrible, um, but she, she responded well to TB treatment and kind of highlights uh, something that I'll cover at the end, which is that DOTS, as a WHO program, uh, was not designed to really effectively deal with extrapulmonary TB because extrapulmonary TB is not a public health threat. People with it in their knee are not going to be spreading it. Um, to other people. And so one of the niches we had at Mercy Medical Center was to diagnose and treat extrapulmonary TB. Um, this is a, a case nine here, of a woman, 35-year-old, with fever and abdominal mass. Classic-looking picture for possible TB, but could have been any number of other things, including like an inflammatory bowel disease. She was HIV negative, and I drew a line <clears throat> on her abdomen because I was convinced she had massive splenomegaly and was thinking maybe is this tropical malaria syndrome, uh, something else. And I took her over to the uh, rural hospital, the referral hospital, and the, we did an ultrasound, and the technician thought uh, it was, you can see, he thought it was a kinococcus, but we don't generally see a kinococcus in Cambodia. It needs sheep, and there's not a lot of sheep there. Um, I think you can have other... Uh, other animals maybe that are part of it, but um, so we then, but but you can see in the CT scan here why he would have thought that because you've got a lot of multilocular lesions, but it turns out that was all in the left lobe of the liver, um, but it was just so huge it was pushed over and looked like the spleen clinically to me, my poor physical exam skills, <clears throat> and so uh, biopsy of those lesions showed that those were tuberculous granulomas. So just all examples of extrapulmonary TB, uh, and here's one more. Uh, this is uh, a case that I learned last year at the Society for Hospital Medicine. Um, two students that presented this as a poster presentation, which was excellent. 14-year-old, previously healthy female, up-to-date on immunizations, presented uh, with altered mental status to an ER in Massachusetts. They were at Tufts. Um, months prior to the um, arrival, prior to her arrival, the PCP had seen her multiple times. She she had been treated for uh, asthma and not responded. She had been treated then for allergic rhinitis as well, not responded. Uh, you know, typical course for treating a subacute or chronic cough in the U.S. She was treated then for sinusitis with amoxicillin, did not respond. And a week prior to her arrival at the hospital, she had a persistent headache. And on the day of admission, she saw the school nurse. Uh, while she was at school with a fever and confusion, and then she had a seizure. She was taken to the ER, a CT of the head was negative, an LP was consistent with bacterial meningitis, and in her social history, um, she had no history of travel, but she did have a Cambodian ethnic background. And as you guys saw in the U.S. data, that puts her in a higher risk category. <clears throat> she did not improve in the PICU. Um, the bacterial meningitis workup was negative. She was being covered, obviously, for that with antibiotics. But the additional tests uh, that were done uh, showed uh, that she was TB positive. Her IGRA was positive, uh, which I'll tell you about. Sputum smear was positive, and her CSF was positive, all for TB. The MRI showed leptomeningeal thickening, and I'll show you that in a second. And she was treated for TB, and uh, she was treated with steroids as well. So one of the few cases where you treat uh, TB with steroids would be uh, a meningitis TB. Another would be pericarditis or any type of obstruction from lymph nodes. Those are situations where you might consider steroids. Otherwise, you typically stay away from them. Um, this is the progression from an early MRI to a later MRI showing the leptomeningeal thickening. This is her MRI. <clears throat> and that can become bad enough that can scar the um, 
the aqueduct uh, of Sylvius cause macrocephaly, CSF flow obstruction. Here's a, a guy I saw that had, I think he was around 60 or 65 years old. He had a fever and back pain, and um, this will lead us into a discussion on diagnosing TB. Um, he had a chest x-ray that looked horrible. This is his chest x-ray, and part of the reason it looks horrible, and you can't see this in the lower right, it's cut off, but you can see a tree branch. Um, this is one of those... Um, you know, I call it the tree and cloud sign of reading a film in a low-resource setting. Um, no, no light box around. Um, so part of the splotchiness is the clouds in the sky uh, behind the x-ray. <laughs> but I highlight this to say most of that is his real lung damage from previous TB. And so it becomes very tricky to know, and many of you have uh, dealt with this, is this active or not? Is this an old, is this old scarring or is this a real infection going on, a new infection? Um, he, I mentioned he was having back pain as well. An x-ray of the spine was negative for POTS. It didn't look bad. Um, but an ultrasound of his back muscles showed he had an abscess in a psoas uh, muscle and he had TB. Uh, so again, just any number of types of presentations uh, and the diagnosis is a challenge in TB. So let's talk about that briefly. Uh, as I mentioned, culture is the gold standard, but it's very slow. Uh, liquid medium is preferred because it is faster, but it's more expensive. Um, sputum smear, smear microscopy is the mainstay for diagnosis of TB uh, in the stop TB strategy worldwide. And as you guys know, it's got a low sensitivity, um, and that's why we repeat it and we use morning samples PPD, uh, which is a TB skin test, purified protein derivative, and IGRO, which is um, interferon, no, inter uh, help me out, IGRO. Thank you, interferon gamma release assay. And that is, uh, trade names are quantiferon gold or T-spot. Um, those are tools that are key for diagnosing latent TB in low prevalence areas typically, but they have limited usefulness in high prevalence areas because they're not quite sensitive enough and they're not specific enough. And so you run into too many false positive, false negative situations. Um, in the U.S., uh, typically nucleic acid amplification testing is done uh, on TB cases, uh, active TB um, but that's very uh, expensive and is difficult to apply to low-resource settings. But, yeah? Not anymore, because globally with the WHO program, they've got over 18,000 of those units now distributed globally. Great. Maybe 30,000 by the end of this year. Yes, and I'll talk about that. You're talking about the expert MTB rifampin, uh, and uh, so it is a new tool that rolled out in 2013 that, has given access even to the district and even sub-district level uh, in some places for uh, diagnosing TB, particularly in the context of MDR-TB and HIV, uh, where sputum smears tend to be more often negative. Tissue biopsy can be helpful. Diagnostic imaging obviously can be helpful. And there are pediatric clinical scoring systems as well. Uh, kids can be very hard to diagnose, and so you can use a scoring system in a low-resource setting uh, that can help you make the decision. Sputum smears are rated from negative all the way up to 4 plus, a strongly positive. And the algorithm gets cut off, but really the, the point of this algorithm is that this is from the Stop TB Strategy Handbook, and it just highlights that AFB and X-ray, so the sputum smears and X-ray are at the center of the approach to pulmonary TB. Um, so just to comment briefly on the expert MTB rifampin, uh, test. It's a new weapon since 2013. It's a two-hour automated nucleic acid uh, amplification test. Um, it gives a drug sensitivity uh, test proxy by testing for the RPOB gene, which confers rifampin resistance. And uh, it's, as was mentioned, growing. A lot, um, and I'll tell you about the future of that as well because they're fine-tuning it and improving on it. Uh, so that's what it looks like. One printer cartridge costs around 17 to 20 U.S. dollars, so cost is a big issue with it. Um, here's a 45-year-old Bhutanese uh, <coughs> uh, immigrant to the U.S., 
And this is a, a fabricated case uh, or constructed based on some cases we saw. Uh, but his rec- records list a negative chest x-ray on pre-departure. He was listed as class B for TB, so that's not active TB. Um, he was healthy when we saw him with no cough. Uh, on physical exam, it was completely normal except for left lung exam. There were dry crackles. So how would you proceed with his management? Go ahead and talk to your neighbor on that one. So this is probably um, an example of, of old damage, but uh, you know he's healthy with no cough. So keeping in mind uh, his symptoms and physical exam presentation, um, we're probably looking at a, a rule-out LTBI type of case. Um, and so latent TB is present in about 3% of Americans, so much, much lower here than um, around the world. 10 to 15 million Americans affected. Um, and that's why we screen high-risk people. And I'm not going to go into detail on this. Um, Greg Juckett is one of the teachers who's been at this course many times, um, and he and some others published a nice article in 2014 on latent TB and the American Family Physician, if you want a good reference. Um, I'll also show you an app uh, that is now out from the CDC to help in this category. Uh, so basically, diagnosing latent TB utilizes TB skin testing or IGRA um, and chest x-ray. So the TB skin test, um, typically, if it's more than 10 millimeters, that's a positive in most of the people we're testing. If it's a high-risk person, such as an HIV positive, more than 5 millimeters is positive. Remember that it's based on induration, which is the raised area, not the erythema, uh, just as the picture shows there. Um, Again, the problem with TSTs are that they are not um, too sensitive and not too specific. Um, they, anyone that has a history of BCG vaccine, and that is a lot of people around the world, um, might have a false positive, um, although that does wane over time. So if you do a TB skin test on someone who has had a BCG, then you should uh, act upon it as if they had not had a BCG vaccine. Um, if you are not doing so, then you probably should not have done the test you probably should have done the IGRA. Uh, Interferon gamma release assay um, have been out a few years now. Uh, They run our office around $200 for one, so they're more expensive than the TB skin test. But the advantage is you don't have to have that patient remember to follow up in 48 to 72 hours for the read. Uh, And the other huge advantage is that it's very specific for human TB. So in anyone that has had the BCG vaccine, um, this that will not cause this test to be positive. Um, it still has trouble with sensitivity, however. So the quantifuron gold is 83% sensitive, roughly, and T-spot is 90%. Quantifuron gold is more specific. So it's a trade-off, and different places use different ones. Uh, for children under 5, I believe IGRA is still not indicated. Uh, it hasn't been studied enough, so we're still using TB skin tests. If you do happen to diagnose latent TB, uh, isoniazid for nine months daily is still the preferred treatment course. There is a new option that I wanted to highlight, and that's isoniazid. It's the third row down here, plus rifapentine, and that is a three-month weekly course. So 12 weeks, uh, single dose each week, and done. And every bit as effective uh, as isoniazid for nine months, we think. Uh, But the problem, again, is cost. Um, This is the app, CDC LTBI, if you want to get it. I haven't used it yet. I tooled around in it. It looks pretty good. It looks like it's mostly quick access to the website material. All right, let's talk about treatment of TB briefly. Um, The WHO uh, regimens for global health rather than the CDC guidelines here. Um, Basically, a a general principle is avoiding monotherapy. You never add only one drug to a failing regimen. Um, The treatment approach is divided into the initiation phase and the continuation phase. And so the classic is an initiation phase of around two months and then a continuation phase 
for four more months for a total course of six months in the classic HIV-negative pulmonary TB patient. Um, we divide the categories of treatment into four. So category ones are the new basic uh, treatment, and that is uh, an example of the nomenclature used by the WHO. So two RHZE means two months of rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. And then the slash 4RH would mean then the continuation phase is four months, rifampin, and isoniazid um, only. Category two are people that relapse or default, and you can see the S added on in the nomenclature. That's the streptomycin, uh, like the girl that was our first case uh, this morning. Category three uh, is new smear negative pulmonary TB and less severe extra pulmonary TB, and category four um, is chronic or failure or MDR or XDR TB cases. Um, there is uh, very strict protocols on monitoring and typically TB around the world, uh, as you guys know, is usually part of, and should be part of a national TB control program. Um, but there are private uh, practices all around the world in dual healthcare systems, so you do see it uh, used in those systems as well. And it's recognized that that needs to be uh, better integrated into most uh, national TB programs in developing countries. Six outcome categories are used to track, and um, I'm going to skip the isolation comments there uh, to get to the medication. So in, in regards to the meds, isoniazid, um, the key uh, drugs really are isoniazid and rifampin because they both have high potency uh, as bactericides. Isoniazid causes neuropathy um, as a common side effect, so it should be given with vitamin B6. Uh, it can also cause hepatitis, as can rifampin and pyrazinamide. Uh, so in a patient that develops hepatitis, typically the approach is stop all the drugs, let the hepatitis resolve, and then restart and substitute out pyrazinamide. Um, <clears throat> rifampin, orange discoloration of fluids, is a, is a concern to make sure you tell patients about. Um, hepatitis. And then the big concern with rifampin, too, is its interaction with a lot of other medications. Um, so it's substituted out in a lot of patients who are on ART, antiretroviral therapy for HIV. Um, ethambutol, the last one on the, uh, on the main four list, is famous for causing optic neuritis. Um, and so anyone who's having visual uh, difficulties, that would be the drug to stop. Um, and typically, you would want to screen vision in people taking a Thambutol. Second-line agents include the aminoglycosides, streptomycin being the oldest, polypeptides, fluoroquinolones, and many others. Um, adjunctives are very important in TB. Um, I was inspired by reading Mountains Beyond Mountains and seeing how Paul Farmer brought Ensure to patients in Haiti. I went to Phnom Penh, bought Ensure, and took it to rural Cambodia, and it really did make a huge difference in helping people turn the corner. Um, I mentioned the corticosteroids for these uses, and otherwise you typically avoid it. I didn't mention iris. That's immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. Uh, so uh, steroids can have a role in that. All right, this is a woman that was being treated with rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, and she presented with a complaint of decreased visual acuity. What do you do? Stop ethambutol. Perfect. Good. Case 14. A three-year-old with fever and dyspnea for 10 days, temp of 39.5, so febrile being 38. Uh, respiratory rate of 45, retractions, wheezing. Based on the chest x-ray, what is the most likely diagnosis? Talk to your neighbor. What do you think it is? That is um, pretty classic looking. It's bilateral for miliary TB. And that is more common in kids. So just a quick review of pediatric TB. It may present as failure to thrive. Miliary and meningeal TB are more common in the very young. Um, and the TB presentation is similar to adults in kids generally over four. Uh, sputum smears are often negative. So gastric lavage is a helpful diagnostic tool in kids. And I mentioned pediatric scoring. 
And there's where miliary TB gets its name from millet seeds for the seedy lesions. Um, here's a 21-year-old Senegalese man who was basically resistant to treatment, um, assuming he had pulmonary TB. And you can tell by the CT, it was very destructive. Um, what do you think is going on in a patient that is HIV positive and not responding to treatment? Uh, this is MDR TB. <clears throat> um, so he was found to be resistant to all the main drugs uh, in the first line, and, uh, and he was treated then for multi-drug resistant, resistant TB with a fluoroquinolone, capriomycin, PAS, and cyclosyrine. So MDR and XDR TB growing problems. Um, they can be fulminant in HIV patients, um, and they are highly infectious. They are more expensive to treat, about 10 to 100 times more expensive. A longer course is required, so six months becomes a minimum generally of 24 months. Um, they have a higher toxicity, uh, the medications, so there's more monitoring required as well. And so this is just a chart demonstrating each month what is supposed to be checked in the MDR uh, guidelines. If you look at cost breakdown, um, I'll just give you some general numbers, but in low-income countries, drug-susceptible TB generally costs $516 for an entire treatment course. MDR-TB in, in the low-income countries generally costs $6,800 to treat, so a huge cost burden, um, and even more expensive in the uh, post-Soviet countries um, where the burden is very high. So there's uh, just charts demonstrating the difference in cost. So the upper number in this chart, uh, you see Russian Federation at around 10000 and in Russia on this one it's around $35,000 for MDR. <clears throat> A 28-year-old African-American homeless male with asthma presented with fever, dyspnea, wheezing. Um, he is HIV positive, a low CD4 count. His chest x-ray shows bilateral infiltrates. In addition to TB, what do we need to be concerned about? PCP. Um, so HIV, TB co-infection is a big problem. Um, I'm going to move forward rather quickly here as we wrap up. But key strategies in TB um, in HIV patients include early ART, antiretroviral therapy. So in all patients who are HIV positive with TB, um, ART should be started, but it should be started two to eight weeks after starting TB treatment so that you decrease the likelihood of the patient developing IRIS, the immune reconstitution uh, inflammatory syndrome. Um, IPT is isoniazid preventive therapy, um, and giving patients who are HIV positive a longer course has been shown to reduce uh, recurrence. A uh, study in Botswana, I think, used 20 months as a, as a guide. TB and diabetes is a growing co-epidemic concern. So there's a lot of new focus on this as diabetics uh, are expected to be around 480 million uh, in number by 2030. And 80% of those are expected to be in developing countries. And as I mentioned, diabetes triples the risk of TB. So this could be a new perfect storm type of situation that we'll be seeing. Uh, briefly on prevention of TB, in addition to IPT, uh, and at the very bottom is ART uh, cut off, is intensified case detection and then TB infection control with BCG vaccine. Uh, a new tool is the BCG Atlas online. You can go to any country, highlight it, and they'll tell you what's going on there with BCG uh, and whether they're using it. The BCG vaccine's been around since 1921. Uh, it's been used in 4 billion people. 90% of children today in the world have had it. Uh, so it's the most used vaccine uh, in history. Um, it, is, it needs to be avoided in HIV-positive infants, and its main role is preventing miliary and meningeal TB in kids. Looks like I got, oh, I'm going backwards. Um, briefly, the history of TB is uh, very fascinating. I won't hit all these spots. Uh, streptomycin was the first drug. That's 1944. In 1993, the WHO declared TB a world emergency. DOTS was launched in 1994. Uh, MDR-TB identified in 95. The Millennium Development Goals came along. The Global Fund came along. And funding for 
uh, HIV, TB, and malaria with the Global Fund helped uh, kind of strengthen the focus. Uh, XDR then emerged. 2006 is when we switched to using DOTS Plus, and I'll tell you about that briefly here as we wind up. So DOTS from 94 to 2006 was built on the work of Dr. Stiblo or Stiblo in Tanzania. China demonstrated its efficacy, um, and they had doubling of cure rates, and so that was launched as a worldwide program in 94. It has five critical interdependent components. All uh, must be executed well for it to work well. And the general goal, uh, key targets at the bottom are cut off, but it's 70% case detection rate which currently we're at around 60%, so we're not achieving that, and 85% cure rate. Stop TB had some problems. It did not address HIV TB co-infection well. It didn't address MDR TB, and it all but ignored extrapulmonary TB. And so DOTS Plus was launched with the Green Light Committee as an organization uh, tied with the WHO to help uh, secure funding for MDR TB. So a more effective program. We've moved from the MDGs, Millennium Development Goals, to the SDGs. And number three is ensuring healthy lives and well-being for all at all ages. And point three of number three is by 2030, end the epidemics of AIDS, TB, and malaria. So end the NTDs as well, the neglected tropical diseases. So, um, So still on the agenda and still driving the money, but there are big funding gaps. This is TB uh, funding gaps. For the Stop TB strategy, 2006 to 2015, the gap was around 500 million. It's now estimated to be around 800 million. So a big, big problem is um, the funding gap. Uh, For 2015, the WHO has launched a new strategy. So we are now not on the Stop TB strategy, but we will be transitioning to the end TB strategy. So, and uh, these are the big, hairy, audacious goals of uh, the WHO and of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so basically, by 2035, 95% reduction in TB deaths, 90% reduction in TB incidents. Um, the pillars are better care and prevention, bolder policies and systems, bigger investments in research. That was one of the flaws of earlier programs. Um, So a a lot more funding to find a vaccine, um, a lot more funding to develop new drugs. Um, This shows the optimism involved in the goals. Um, Our current global trend is the red dashed line. That's the decrease in incidence at 1.5% per year. So if we continue as is, that's how it goes to 2035. We have to increase to negative 10% per year by 2025 um, to hit a curve close to what the NTB goal is. Quickly, future developments. uh, FIND is the foundation for innovation of new diagnostics. There's a lot of molecular diagnostics in the pipeline. Expert Omni is a new platform that's being developed that's basically cheaper, more mobile, um, and that's for the current Expert MTB test. Expert Ultra uh, is... going to be tested around 2016-17, and that's expected to have improved sensitivity. So currently, the expert test that's being used is uh, about 73% sensitive in picking up TB in patients who are sputum smear negative, but have it. So it's very good, but it's only 73% of picking it up. They're expecting that this will be 95% at picking it up. That's the expert ultra. And then a very exciting uh, new one in the pipeline being funded by the Gates Foundation is Allaire Q. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Um, But it it will involve full drug susceptibility testing all in a cartridge with a result in 20 minutes if it works. So that will be rolling out, you know, I would expect, what, five years, ten years, a little longer. And as far as treatments in the pipeline, there are a lot. so it's been an exciting 10 years for treatment. Um, Bedaquilin, does anyone know how to say that? Is that correct? Yes. Bedaquilin is a new one that's rolled out. Um, it's actually got provisional guidelines for use in MDR-TB. They ramped it up real quick. Uh, rifapentine, I already told you about for latent TB. Um, and now for drug-susceptible TB, rifapentine is being looked at to re- replace rifampicin or rifampin and Uh, shortened courses. So there's a lot of um, tests being done to see if that will work. There's also a lot of new combination uh, tests being studied to see if using 
uh, either rifapentine or linezolid, bedaquiline, or clofazamine can lead to shorter courses. And finally, in the vaccine world, <clears throat> there are over 30 vaccines in development. There are 16 currently in clinical trials. Uh, and the basic goal is vaccines that would work for adolescents and adults, um, not just for those early childhood. Uh, so working on that, um, it is estimated that to diagnose and treat TB is around $8 billion a year in cost. Um, but to develop one vaccine in the next 10 to 15 years would be about 0.8 to, to $1 billion. So a good uh, investment. Um, I have references. I'll stick around um, if you want to chat. Um, we are right on the hour. So if you need to get going, I understand. Um, so just step on out. Um, I'll take a few questions if you have any. Thanks. Thanks.